0: Well, thank you. I'll call this hearing to order. Thank you all for being here, and welcome to the third hearing in the East Asia and Pacific and International Cybersecurity Policy subcommittee meeting in the 115th Congress. Today's topic is State-Sponsored Threats in Cyberspace, which has emerged as one of the primary national security challenges for the United States government, the primary risk to the U.S. economy and the private sector, and the primary threat to our nation's critical infrastructure. Simply put, our national and economic security depends on both securing our networks and effectively deterring our adversaries, who are getting stronger, not weaker, by the day. According to the 2017 Worldwide Threat Assessment of the United States Intelligence Community, and I quote, our adversaries are becoming more adept at using cyberspace to threaten our interests and advance their own. And despite improving cyber defenses, nearly all information communication networks and systems will be at risk for years. The report specifically mentions China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea as the four cyber actors of greatest concern. These countries have developed asymmetric cyber capabilities that can cause significant damage to the United States and American interests, with little public awareness of the immense consequences. Yesterday, the Washington Post reported, hackers allied with the Russian government have devised a cyber weapon that has the potential to be the most disruptive yet against electric systems that Americans depend on for daily life. This is the same group that attacked Ukraine's electric grid in 2015, leaving 225,000 people without power. Last month, the so-called WannaCry ransomware affected over 200,000 users in 151 countries, allegedly by exploiting certain machines with an unpatched software security flaw. Our policies have not effectively kept up with the threat. The U.S. international strategy for cyberspace is now over six years old, and so in technology terms, it's a fossil. Our efforts to develop effective global cyber norms and the components that are necessary for global partnerships have also sputtered. As the 2017 Worldwide Threat Assessment stated, although efforts are ongoing to gain adherence to certain voluntary, non-binding norms of responsible state behavior in cyberspace, they have not gained universal acceptance, and efforts to promote them are increasingly polarized. The good actors are being outpaced by the dark arts of cyber. Our diplomatic and economic response has been similarly lacking. Despite the bevy of executive orders and legal authorities available for successive administrations uh, to punish state-sponsored actors, only a handful of North Korean actors were designated after the Sony attack in 2014. Last year, Senator Menendez and I led the passage of the North Korea Sanctions and Policy Enhancement Act, the first legislation to mandate sanctions on malicious cyber actors working on behalf of that regime regardless of where they are based. Not one, not one has been designated to date under this legislation. Cyber attackers do not sleep. They don't sleep at the switch. They reprogram it. We must choose to either use all instruments of national power, including diplomacy, economic sanctions, and offensive capabilities to deter the malicious cyber actors or cede the field to our adversaries and face catastrophic consequences. I look forward to hearing from our distinguished witnesses today uh, and on ways that we can strengthen U.S. policy to address these grave threats. With that, I'll turn it over to our ranking member, uh, Senator Markey from Massachusetts.
1: Okay. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. And uh, thank you for convening what I believe is going to be one of the most important hearings that is conducted here in Washington this week. Uh, as you mentioned, the recent WannaCry ransomware attack has yet again highlighted the vulnerability of digital devices to exploitation and disruption by malicious actors. Today's era is known as the IOT, the Internet of Things. But IOT can also stand for Internet of Threats. And 24 years ago, in April of 1993, uh, I, as the chairman of the Telecommunications Committee uh, in the House of Representatives, uh, conducted a hearing Uh, in uh, in 1993, during which a group of specialists from Sun Microsystems demonstrated in real time how simple tools could be used to steal data from personal electronic devices. That hearing showed that the architecture of the Internet was created for ease of access, not for security. And as Secretary Rosenbach notes in uh, uh, in his testimony today, Heavy U.S. reliance on digital devices and communications means that these security gaps could have an outsized impact on U.S. national security and economic prosperity. Uh, That hearing in 1993 also demonstrated, as they pointed out, how – how uh, there could be a a cracking into the Kremlin or to the Pentagon or to our South South Pacific fleet. So these are not new issues. Uh, These are issues that we just decided not to fully deal with in terms of what the implications are for our nation. And just yesterday, the Washington Post reported that Russian hackers have developed a cyber weapon that can attack our electricity systems. Uh, They were already successful in disrupting an uh, enemy an energy system in the Ukraine, making it that much more important that we double down on protections to have our grid at home be protected. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, just a few Congresses ago, uh, Congressman uh, Fred Upton and I were able to pass a bill through the House of Representatives Uh, which was called the GRID Act that mandated an upgrading in the overall protections against cyber attacks uh, which could occur in our country. But that was in 2010. Uh, It came over here to the Senate, and unfortunately uh, it died. Uh, But those hearings, that record, all was established because the National Security Agency, because the intelligence agencies had come to Fred and I asking us to do something because they felt the threat was real. So this is something that is possible, already happened in the Ukraine. Uh, It's it's something that keeps national security people up at night worrying about how vulnerable our own national electricity system could be uh, and other parts of our system as well. That's why this hearing is so important. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
0: Thank you, Senator Markey. Senator Merkley, thanks for joining us. Uh, Anything you'd like to say off the bat here as we begin?
2: Well, this is extremely important, both as it relates to the security of our infrastructure, certainly the security of our elections, the security of our financial systems. We've seen attacks in each area, and I'm looking forward to the the testimony of our experts.
0: Thank you, Senator Merkley. Thanks for joining us today. Our first witness will turn to the testimony now. Our first witness is Dr. Samantha Ravitch, who currently serves as a senior advisor to the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, or FDD, as well as the principal investigator on cyber-enabled economic warfare project at FDD's Center for Sanctions and Illicit Finance. Dr. Ravitch is the former Deputy National Security Advisor for Vice President Cheney and served in the White House for over five years. Following her time at the White House, Dr. Ravitch was the co-chair of the congressionally mandated National Commission for Review of Research and Development Programs in the United States Intelligence Community. Welcome, Dr. Ravitch. Our second witness today uh, is uh, the Honorable Eric Rosenbach, who serves as co-director of the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs, at the Harvard Kennedy School. Mr. Rosenbach formerly served as Chief of Staff to Secretary of Defense Ash Carter and also as Assistant Secretary of Defense responsible for leading all aspects of the department's cyber strategy, policy, and operations. He also served here in the Senate as National Security Advisor for then-Senator Chuck Hagel and as a professional staff member on the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. Uh, Welcome, Mr. Rosenbach, and uh, Dr. Ravitch, thank you very much for being here, and we'll go ahead and proceed with your testimony.
3: Thank you. Uh, Chairman Gardner, ranking member markey distinguished members of the subcommittee thank you for inviting me to participate in this important hearing my testimony today focuses on an area that i believe is woefully underappreciated yet cannot be more important for our country and that is the use of cyber means by adversarial states to purposely undermine our economy in order to weaken us militarily and politically It is my contention that the threats are real, the warfare is ongoing, and that the U.S. government is inadequately structured to properly and comprehensively detect, evaluate, and address cyber-enabled economic threats. The U.S. government has made great strides in organizing itself to protect and defend the .gov and .mil realms, but our nation's greatest vulnerability may lie with adversarial attacks on the U.S. private sector. It is true that the business of America is business, and the business of America is at risk of being hollowed out from the inside by everything from theft of intellectual property to the malicious infection of the supply chain to the degradation of confidence in our commerce, banking, and transportation sectors. But it is not the pure cyber criminal that should keep this committee up at night. Rather, it is the hostile state actor who recognizes that while it may not be able to compete directly with America's strength of arms, it holds a significant asymmetric advantage in attacking our economic wherewithal and by so doing weaken us militarily or politically. We call this purposeful strategy cyber-enabled economic warfare. Two of the most active players in this field are the Chinese and the North Koreans. For decades, China has been engaged in a massive, prolonged campaign of intellectual property theft against U.S. firms, costing potentially hundreds of billions of dollars and more than two million jobs, China's IP theft campaign constitutes a large, if not the largest part of what appears to be Beijing's overall cyber-enabled economic warfare strategy against the U.S. and the West more generally, which they themselves have described as, quote, a form of non-military warfare, which is just as terribly destructive as a bloody war, but in which no blood is actually shed. Recently, Beijing punished a private South Korean company, in part by denial of service attacks for participating in the THAAD deployment. The revenue lost was marginal, but the move has prompted deep concerns in Seoul. South Korea exported over $120 billion to China last year, about a quarter of the country's total exports, and is particularly vulnerable to Chinese coercion. A possible result? South Korean President Moon has suspended further deployment of <laughs> THAAD. However, Washington and its allies have been slow to comprehend the threat from China, primarily because they view each cyber-enabled economic attack individually as separate incidents instead of collectively as elements in an overall coordinated campaign. And North Korea. South Korean police cyber investigators stated in 2016 that North Korea had operationalized a long-term plan involving the seeding of malicious code at over 160 South Korean private firms and government agencies, quote, aimed to cause confusion on a national scale by launching a simultaneous attack. As well, North Korean hackers most likely initiated the WannaCry ransomware attack. The monetary haul from the scheme was minimal leading some analysts to question if the effort was a test for a larger attack. Similar assessments have been made about the 2016 cyber bank heist on the New York Fed, tied to a North Korean cyber group. While some have remarked that it appears that the North Koreans may now be robbing banks, it is more chilling to consider that the North Koreans now may be targeting our banking sector. With a GDP per capita of barely $1,000, North Korea has an obvious need to rob rob banks. But Kim Jong-un is not simply a Korean Willie Sutton. In a military confrontation with the U.S. and South Korea, Kim would look to any capability that could help even out the overwhelming military advantage of the Allies. Attacking our economies, which he has already proven he can and will do, may be the quickest way to gain battlefield advantage since it could potentially cause panic in our markets and on our streets. Without a concerted effort, the United States economy will become increasingly vulnerable to hostile adversaries seeking to undermine our military and political strength. The U.S. government must immediately undertake a number of actions to prevail in this new battle space, including sustained attention in understanding the capabilities and intentions of adversarial leadership with a long-term strategy to deter and defeat them. But the U.S. cannot go it alone in its endeavors to safeguard the networks and systems upon which our economy depends and which we must take steps to formalize the cyber partnerships that already exist with the other free market democracies that are leaders in cyber science and technology, specifically with the U.K. and Israel. I've included additional recommendations and policy prescriptions in my written testimony. I thank you for the opportunity to testify, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Dr. Thank you.
0: Ravitch, and thank you for being very, uh, very prompt. Uh, thank you. Uh, uh, Mr.
4: Uh, Mr. Chairman, before I started, I wanted to let you know something that I hope doesn't get me in trouble with uh, Senator Markey. Is, I was born and raised in Colorado, uh, diehard Denver Broncos fan, so despite the fact I live in Cambridge, Massachusetts, I'm going to fly a big Denver Broncos flag out there all the time.
0: Did you, did you go to school at the University of Colorado, the Harbor of uh, the West?
4: I, I grew up in Colorado Springs <laughs> and in Breckenridge, so not in college, but still cheering for the Orange Crush. Sorry, Senator. Uh, Uh, Chairman Gardner, uh, Ranking Member Markey, and Senator Merkley, uh, thank you very much for the invitation, and thank you for calling this important hearing today. As as technology advances and we become more connected, we increasingly live in a digital glass house that must must be much better protected. I like to use the glass house analogy because it helps illustrate two important points. First, that cyber warfare is truly asymmetric. A small nation with an offensive cyber capability can have an outsized effect on a larger power. For example, the U.S., a technological and economic powerhouse, is significantly more vulnerable to cyber attack than North Korea, as we just heard from Dr. Ravitch, a nation where most citizens do not even have an Internet connection. We should, therefore, think very carefully about the implications of a possible North Korean cyber attack against the United States something that I unfortunately believe is likely to happen within the next year if current trends continue. Second, democracies' transparent, open societies also make them vulnerable to foreign information operations. This vulnerability is exacerbated by high levels of Internet (coughs) accessibility and the rapid pace and breadth of information sharing. In contrast, authoritarian societies like China, Russia, and North Korea often control the media Censor domestic online activity and shield their nations to some degree from the outside information and cyber operations um, through the use of national-level firewalls, like the Great Firewall of China, for example. Unfortunately, no nation, including the United States, has responded to Russia's recent potent hybrid of cyber and information attacks in a way that is visible and forceful enough to deter future attacks. The fragility of our national security posture combined with our adversary's perception that Russia's recent actions achieved unprecedented success increases the likelihood that the U.S. and our allies will experience more serious attacks like this in the coming years. Thus, the U.S. needs to bolster its deterrence posture by both raising the costs and decreasing the benefits to hostile actors of engaging engaging in this conduct. Uh, In 2015, the Department of Defense articulated for the first time our strategy on deterrence in cyberspace. In short, the strategy said that deterrence is partially a function of perception. We said that deterrence works by convincing a potential adversary that it will suffer unacceptable costs if it conducts an attack against the United States and by decreasing the likelihood that the potential adversary's attack will succeed. And this is all based on their perception of that. In terms of increasing the cost of an attack, The U.S. and international community should be less circumspect about employing all available foreign policy tools, particularly those outside of the cyber domain. Given the glass house effect that I previously described, we should be careful about responding to cyber attacks with military options. However, we should be prepared to use our superior cyber capabilities strategically and creatively to demonstrate our willingness to act in the face of serious provocations. Additionally, the U.S. must increase the cost of cyber and information operations by using foreign policy tools outside the military domain, such as, one, attributing publicly cyber and information attacks as soon as we have confidence in their origins and not waiting for months or longer. Two, pushing for sustained multilateral economic sanctions against states that use cyber and information weapons. Three, reinventing our capabilities with respect information operations and our strategy for countering them. Number four, taking a leading role in building international capacity to disrupt the proliferation of black market destructive malware. As I mentioned, reducing the benefits that adversaries derive from cyber and information operations is another key aspect of bolstering our deterrence posture. To do this, the administration, Congress, and the private sector should work together to, first, pass legislation that the government and the private sector can share threat information, including with state election bodies and campaigns to facilitate that. Two, legislate mandatory compliance of the NIST cybersecurity framework, something that I know you've done some work on. Three, pursue aggressive steps to mitigate the effect of information operations on the platforms of leading tech companies, including Facebook, Twitter, and Google. And four, incentivize investment, private sector investment in cloud-based security, blockchain-enabled transactions, and quantum computing. Uh, in the interest of time, I'll submit the rest of my uh, testimony for the record, um, but I would like to say that the strength of the American sector, tech sector has driven the American economy for almost two decades, driven our democracy. It's very important that we protect that center of gravity by bolstering our deterrence posture and doing some of the things that I spoke about and some of the things also that uh, Dr. Ravitch just mentioned as well. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Mr. Rosenbach, and we'll proceed uh, with, with questions. I, I guess I would kind of lay out just a, a question about process and construct of our ability to deal with uh, cyber threats. Uh, you both mentioned various elements and various dimensions of the cyber, cyber challenge we face. Uh, you talked about cyber-enabled economic warfare. Uh, you've talked about, in your testimonies, you've talked about IP theft. you talked about uh, theft of intellectual property in the United States, uh, which some estimate is as high as $540 billion a year, I believe, is in your testimony. Uh, we've talked about how uh, North Korea has hacked Sony Pictures. We've talked about the ransomware. Uh, and so there are so many different elements of cyber policy. We have different elements within the federal government to respond to those. Uh, we have, a, a, cyber, we have a, a, a tech czar at the White House. We have a... Uh, cyber uh, position at the Department of State. We have offices within the Pentagon. As you look at the federal government, who is in charge of our cyber policy? Either one of you. Senator, I think it's a
4: really good question. Yeah, thank you. I think that's a great question. And I have to be honest, uh, when I look at the administration right now, I'm not as sure about that. There is still the White House cyber coordinator but I'm not sure even during the Obama administration that that position was empowered enough to bring all of the people from around the government to the table and to really drive some of the change that's necessary to make a, a big difference. I think um, when it comes down to it, there has to be collaboration between all the departments and agencies. When I first started uh, in the Obama administration almost eight years ago, it was a mess in terms of figuring out even what the roles and responsibilities were and the lanes and the roads were for defending the country and working with the private sector. I think that's more established now, but we still could use a very strong uh, leadership position there. Dr. Ravitch, who's in charge?
3: Um, well, I have to agree with my co-panelists that um, I, for the entire apparatus, there currently isn't an empowered, uh, uh, either an individual or an agency to do what... I think, is necessary, which, borrowing a phrase from the military, is, is a bit of an OODA loop, right? I mean, you know, how are we going to understand the threat that is out there so that we make sure that as we're putting in um, the right, uh, either on the defense or an offense, it's having um, uh, the effect that we want? Uh, right now, still, uh, cyber, cyber war is not run by computers, it's run by the man behind the man behind the computer. These are decisions being made on the adversarial state level by leadership and people empowered by the leadership in adversarial states. It doesn't just all of a sudden happen. Um, so the first of the OODA loop, um, observe, do we really know who is in charge of making these decisions in a Russia, in a China, in a Pyongyang, in a Tehran, um, so that we can exploit fissures and vulnerabilities um, to go after the people that are making those decisions, and then funneling it down to the operators and being able to see the effects. And I, think I don't see this loop.
0: And I think that's a significant problem that we face and because we don't know who's in charge. And that's a big challenge because in your testimony, I think you lay out the – as the U.S. economy grows and as an economy anywhere around the globe becomes more sophisticated, then they're more vulnerable and more susceptible to cyber attacks. And as the asymmetric ability of North Korea or Iran rises, it's pretty doggone important that we have somebody that we can turn to and say, you are in charge of this country's, this government's cyber policy. One of the things that I have supported uh, and others on the committee have supported is the creation of a select committee on cybersecurity that would take the, the ranking member, the chair of each committee that has jurisdiction over cybersecurity, put them on one committee so that they can have a whole of government view because this is a complex issue, this isn't just about uh, weapons systems. That uh, the national, the Defense Department Science Board noted that the nation's weapons systems are at risk from the malicious insertion of defects or malware. Uh, it's not just about that. It's not just about North Korea attacks. It's about changing decimal points at hospitals. Uh, that could result in deaths, it is about a whole of government view, and we need to to know who's in charge. So with that being said, a scale of preparedness, where on a scale of preparedness, zero to 100, where is the United States government uh, in preparedness against uh, some kind of major cyber event?
3: Well, given um, what, I, what I wrote in my testimony and what I said that the U.S. government uh, looks after .mil and, and .gov and .com is essentially on your own, um, right there you're starting from less than 50 percent or more because who is watching out for the very lifeblood of, of our country? We would not be the number one military if we were not the number one economy. Um, so I think right there, you're, you're starting out, and you have the beginning of your answer.
0: Mr. Rosenbach, and, and just to maybe ask a different question to you, uh, you talked about raising costs and decreasing benefits for uh, the, the act uh, of a cyber uh, attack, uh, cyber hack. Um, did we make the costs efficient enough on North Korea in relation to Sony? Did we make it sufficient enough in Iran after a variety of uh, hacks of, of electric facilities in this country? Did we, did we make it sufficient uh, toward Russia? Uh, and I have an amendment to the sanctions bill that would require cyber sanctions on Iran. we we'll just uh, briefly, if you could hit that and then I'll turn to Senator Markey.
4: Yes, sir. I think in the case of the North Korean cyber attacks against Sony that the response was strong enough and was quite good because it then mitigated attacks from North Korea down the road. That said, I don't think the response in the case of the recent Russian cyber and information operations against the United States was strong enough at all, which leaves, unfortunately, I think, the perception that other adversaries will try to take advantage of our system to do
0: something similar down the road. We're going to work on that this week, so thank you. Senator Markey.
1: Um, thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. Um, yeah, turning to those Russian elections, again, it, it's uh, the Russian interference in our elections. Um, it doesn't have to be complex. It can be a relatively simple um, spear-fishing attack. Uh, and the, that can ultimately have very important consequences within our country. And just luring someone into giving over their credentials to... Uh, an attacker. Uh, and by the way, the same thing could happen in trying to lure people in in utilities to give over information that can be valuable then for the subsequent much more devastating attack. Huh? So when when you uh, were answering uh, the questions of the chairman about the vulnerability of our government, when you look at the utility sector, Mr. Rosenbach, Do they take it seriously enough yet? Do they actually want to spend the money in order to ensure that they've got state-of-the-art protections which they're built in? Are they just willing to run kind of the risk that maybe they'll be lucky and it'll never hit them, but they never had to spend the money in order to protect against an attack, which we know that Russia already launched against Ukraine successfully, uh, and that they or the North Koreans or others could launch against us. So does the utility industry take it seriously enough?
4: Um, Senator, it's definitely on their radar. They have dedicated efforts that all of the utility uh, companies do, I think, to look at this. But they don't take it seriously enough, and that's the right way to ask the question, I think. And why so. is that? I, I think when it comes down to it, um, some of this stuff can be expensive and it can be complicated. And normally, you're not forced to do things unless you have to, or there's a return to your bottom line. Cybersecurity is a cost center, and. In some domains, banks, for example, they're willing to spend extra money because they see that it's a good investment. I'm not sure it's the same in the utilities.
1: Yeah, Joe Tucci is a friend of mine. He's the CEO of EMC. He was until um, Dell purchased EMC, but that's the largest company in Massachusetts. But within that company is a, is a subgroup called RSA, which is kind of state-of-the-art um, cyber protections. And I asked Mr. Tucci, I said, why don't companies buy the state-of-the-art from RSA. He said, well, they don't want to spend the money. And I said, well, what if they did spend the money? Well, he said, then they'd be protected because we're constantly upgrading, but they don't want to spend the money. And then I continued to pursue it because it goes to government contractors or to private sector companies as well, just trying to probe why they won't spend the money. And as you said, it's a cost center. They don't want to spend it, but it causes inevitably kind of a a catastrophic event. So can you get into that mentality a little bit more and what your recommendations would be to us in order to make sure that we prepare our country properly for the inevitable, which is that cyber is going to become the tool which is used in so many more instances than conventional weapons because they're, they, they don't potentially cause fatalities but the disruptions could be catastrophic.
4: Yes, sir. I think, like I mentioned in my opening comments, the starting point is to make the the NIST framework mandatory for critical infrastructure and the energy sector in particular. And remember, the private sector, (laughs) the energy sector, works with NIST on this to come up with the framework. It's not as if it's legislated in law that you need to have three firewalls and your network needs to be architected in that way. I think when you read the Washington Post article from yesterday and you see what happened in Ukraine, you better take warning on that because if we don't, both play defense and then have a strong deterrence posture, something bad is going to happen, and we'll regret we didn't do more.
1: All right, and then you turn to the industry, and you say to the industry, let's have standards. And they go, yeah, but voluntary standards. Please don't make them mandatory. That would be, like, financially catastrophic for us. But we agree with you. It could be catastrophic if there's an attack on the electric grid. So how do we deal with that issue if we know what the threat is, we know what happened in Ukraine, we know it could apply just as easily to the uh, electric grid of the United States, and we have an industry that wants voluntary, not mandatory, um, uh, protections which are built into the system?
4: Sir, I I think you need to legislate on it. And, you know, there have been various various bills that incorporate both information sharing and some sort of standard Mm -hmm. for infrastructure protection – do it in certain sectors, make sure that it's not overly burdensome, that it's done in conjunction with the private sector. I, I also believe that it's a little counterintuitive, but that it would do something to spur the economy and the tech sector because there would end up being more demand for that. And in the end, it would be two net positives rather than something that would be an overly burdensome regulatory regime. And I agree
1: with you. Do you agree with uh, Mr. Rosenbach uh, Dr. Rubic?
3: I I do, I do. Um, But I think this also points to an area where government funded research and development. Um, is needed. Uh, you know, they're, they're, whether we're talking about uh, new advances in SCADA legacy systems, or the, you know, the truly long tail R and D that the private sector um, has a hard time making a case for upfront with its investors, because uh, you know, when when they're going to get the returns from it is a little unknown. Are perfect areas for serious R&D, cyber R&D that I believe the U.S. government should be on the forefront of promoting with, I would add, um, two of our closer friends and allies that are the other two most technologically savvy countries in the world, the U.K. and Israel. Um, We should be thinking about working closer with those two nations in some form of cyber co-op with a structured R&D agenda as potentially the first thing that we go ahead on, things that the private sector may not put their their money um, to do but is necessary for the security of our economies and our systems.
1: Yeah, uh, Senator Merkley and I were in, uh, Senator Goddard, we were in Israel last year, and that's one of the points that the Prime Minister was making to us that they're really focusing upon cyber security as a big new industry for them. And so when I got back up to Boston, I asked one of the cyber company CEOs about Israel. They said, oh, they're the best, they're state of the art. We bought five of their companies this year. So you are right, okay? There is a close working interrelationship and it would get better if there was a mandate that especially the critical infrastructure in our country had to be protected. You wouldn't have to worry. It would get developed, and the costs would uh, go down. <clears throat> the technology would become more ubiquitous. But until that signal is sent, I think we're going to just see a constant repetition syndrome of a cycle where the same thing happens. Everyone responds. They're absolutely shocked. Uh, they hope that the issue goes away. And then we wait for the very next thing to occur, but in a slightly different setting. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
0: Thank you, Senator Markey. Senator Merkley.
2: Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair, and thank you both for your testimony and Dr. Ravich, I was fascinated by your story about South Korea and China. If I understand right, uh, is it pronounced Lotte? latte the uh, the latte company latte okay that of course makes me want to go out and buy some coffee. But the latte company uh, sold its golf course uh, to the government of South Korea so that they could put up the THAAD, the Terminal High Altitude Area Defense uh, anti-missile system. And then uh, China's, China decided, well, we'll make an example out of them. They shuttered their, their stores, a traditional type of uh, uh, response. They then took down the latte website with a denial-of-service attack, uh, so cyber attack. Uh, and then their Chinese uh, uh, retailers dropped latte products from their sites. Uh, And uh, all of this uh, happened just as there was a new prime minister in South Korea, a new president, uh, who uh, then sent an emissary to uh, President Xi of of China, and in short order, Latte was unblocked, and and South Korea suspended the THAAD program. Is it your understanding that really the suspension of the THAAD program came directly as a response to the Chinese cyber attack on South Korea?
3: Well, I don't know if it was a direct result or it's part of a, of a larger pattern of Chinese coercion um, uh, against the South Koreans in this context. Uh, you know, when, when uh, China looks at all of uh, the different muscles that it can flex, when it has that type of trading arrangement with the South Koreans and know that the South Koreans have that much uh, product that they're selling into China, China holds, holds a lot of cards. Um, and uh, that this was clearly a shot across the bow in Seoul. Um, You do this, these are the types of effects you're going to feel. The DDoS attack was a small attack uh, monetarily-wise, but clearly uh, these things are all part of a pattern Um, I don't think it goes too far to say that this was something that the uh, Chinese lifted when the South Koreans... Have have
2: we seen China enact uh, similar patterns of retaliation against companies that that are engaged in things it doesn't like, or is this kind of a new test?
3: Uh, No, we we see a pattern. I see Eric shaking his head, yes. I see pattern after pattern. There was um, an example in in Vietnam not too long ago, um, uh, actually after the, the... um, the Hague decision uh, for the Philippines and against China. Um, uh, it appears that China wanted to send a specific message to Vietnam. Don't you get any ideas um, in those territorial waters? Um, and there were certain trade actions taken against uh, Vietnam as well. Great.
2: Um, I wanted to turn to North Korea because here in the United States we have the NSA full of some of the brightest computer minds to be found uh, certainly throughout our country and, and probably beyond. And I think about, so here's North Korea that doesn't have a lot of contact with outside world what is our assessment on how they developed such enormous capability are they benefiting from uh, cyber expertise being shared from the the chinese or have they simply made this such a priority for their their country that that they are harvesting every great mathematical computer code mine to go to work on this project
3: well uh d- so the answer is certainly the, the latter. But how they affect that, they have made this a clear priority. They know that this is one of their greatest asymmetric strengths, um, to be able to go after the economy in South Korea but the North Korean scientists do travel the world. They do go to conferences. Um, they do have access to journals and online resources. Um, they aren't growing up in a bubble, so to speak. Uh, they they are learning from uh, potentially other hostile state and
2: non-state actors. So here's here's a here's a question. Then so we've seen North Korea with the WannaCry Cry ransomware attack, the Sony attack, the Dark Soul attack. Uh, the Bangladesh uh, account attempted $1 billion heist. We see, and I'm sure there's a long, much longer list than that. And so why is North Korea not concerned about extensive retaliation? And is it because in part that their own economy is not computerized in a way that makes it very vulnerable to such retaliation?
3: I think they've learned a valuable lesson over the last 20 years that they can get away with a lot. Um, without facing any you know uh punishment that they feel the pain. Um, even with the sanctions regime, they keep getting layered and layered over them. They continue with their nuclear and missile programs. Uh, the the elites still get to live like elites. The burden falls on the average person. Um, so they continue to do what they want to do when they want to do it, and um, they haven't uh, had enough of uh, persuasion to change their, their pathway.
2: So in conventional warfare, one thing that deters folks is I attack them, they'll, they'll attack back. So I'll, my time's running out, so I'll just ask you two people. Pieces of this this question: Should we send a message that we are going to respond ferociously uh, if we're attacked, and that in a cyber manner if attacked by North Korea again? And second of all, should should we uh, take sanctions against their computer scientists traveling the world and attending conferences, if if you will, a privilege that you, you've noted that they uh, still enjoy?
3: Um, uh, Taking the the second part first, um, uh, absolutely, it gets to understanding who is in the command and control apparatus of North Korea cyber um, and who is operationalizing it, and absolutely, that should be uh, clearly on the docket. Um, On the first, um, we do need and will need to respond more forcefully, but we better ensure that our castle walls are strong enough. Um, And that is of great concern.
2: Which, they're not even close. Yeah. Thank you. Yep. Senator Kane. Thank you,
0: Mr.
5: Chair, and thanks to the witnesses. Uh, Mr. Rosenbach, in your written testimony, you quote from a Department of Defense uh, document, uh, a cyber strategy document dated 2015. And the quote is about deterrence, and it says it works by, quote, convincing a potential adversary that it will suffer unacceptable costs if it conducts an attack on the United States and by decreasing the likelihood that a potential adversary's attack will succeed. Reporting today suggests that as part of the growing um, facts that are available about the Russian cyberattack on the election, that 39 state boards of elections were hacked in some way by the Russians. So clearly we did not convince a potential adversary that it will suffer unacceptable consequences. Have you de- delved into why we didn't? I think the testimony is that President Obama in September told Vladimir Putin to, quote, knock it off. And, and then there was even a use of the red line, right, uh, the red phone right before the election to reach out and say, hey, we know what you're doing. Why was not more done and why wasn't more done publicly uh, to discuss the fact of this Russian incursion into our elections? Uh,
4: Senator, that's a, that's a really hard question for me because I was so involved in all of the deliberations about that. And so I would just say this, that I personally believe that we should have done much more, that we should have done much more sooner to send a signal that this is not something that would be acceptable to the United States. Recognizing that an attack on our democracy in the way that it happened is probably the most serious attack on a vital U.S. national interest, it's hard for me to imagine that we shouldn't have been more muscular in our response. Uh, But I don't have to tell you, at at the time that this was going on, there were different ideas about what the outcomes might be, and that that sometimes influences uh, foreign policy decisions as well.
5: And and regardless of the outcomes, an attack is an attack, and the integrity of the system is something we should protect one way or the other, correct? Yes, sir. I, I think the thing
4: I'm most concerned about now is even after the fact, we still have not responded... To the Russians in a way that the rest of the world sees that you can't get away with doing this to the United States. So I'm concerned now that in the next, next election, the North Koreans,
5: they definitely watch that. So do the Iranians. Wouldn't you think the rest of the world would also potentially draw the message wow, if the U.S. wouldn't act vigorously to defend itself, what's the likelihood that they would defend us? Against some attack, if we're not yes, our own absolutely. Election, I think that's a great point. anybody else's?
4: Yes, sir, and and this is not this is not a political thing. I know there's a lot of you know stuff going on associated with this issue that's political right now, but we as a country need to raise above the political fear about it and do something about cyber and information attacks against the democracy, or otherwise, in the years to come, it is just going to get worse.
5: I mean, I'll just say, you know, kind of to my surprise, in the aftermath of the election. Um, I was amazed how much of it was known by folks with the administration and how little was done. Um, calculations, as you say, I mean, I, I know a lot more after November 8, but I was amazed how much of that was known long before November 8, with little action. And I, compa- and, and, and I contrast it, and I don't, I'm not sure it's a fair, completely uh, fair comparison, but with the French experience. So when they were aware that there was a Russian effort to suck data and emails away from candidates, they made that very public. And then when there started to be the dumping of such data, they also made that very public. They made a, a very different calculation than we did, and that may be the ability to take advantage of learning. You, had, you know, an Estonian attack is early, then, and a, you know, involvement in a Brexit vote, and then involvement in the U.S. election, and by now there's an opportunity to, wow, this is really happening, we better talk about it. But, but they really made a different calculation as a nation, not any particular party. As a nation, they made the calculation russia is doing this we're going to call them out on it on the actual attack and taking of data and emails and then as soon as they start to dump them we're also going to call them out on it which which led voters to at least maybe have a little sense of skepticism about what they might hear um, you know that's not the only way to respond to an attack but being transparent to the public about what's going on that would seem to be in accord with our own values as well wouldn't you agree
4: Uh, I I really strongly agree, Senator. I think the way the French handled it was very sophisticated. They did have the huge advantage of seeing that it was probably coming because of uh, things that the Russians had done. However, they they weren't afraid to go out there. And then they also did things that were kind of creative with information ops Mm -hmm. themselves. Those are things that we should learn from and that we should watch out for with our allies. And, you know, that's, again, the point here is we need to – think about this domain in a more creative way and realize that it has grave consequences for the country if we're not gonna
5: be tough and think about it you know, in a sophisticated way like other foreign policy. And Mr. Chair, if I could just say one thing, it's not really a question, but I really appreciated that aspect of Dr. Ravitch's testimony because um, it kind of challenged my own thinking. Virtually, every, I'm on the Armed Services Committee too in, in foreign relations, Virtues, virtually everything we talk about military operation, we talk about our allies. What are we going to do together with our allies? But often when we have cyber discussions, we have cyber discussions, you know, just what should the U.S. do? And we don't talk about it so much with respect to allies other than intelligence sharing. But in terms of what we might do together with allies, we talk about that in other realms of defense, not in cyber defense. And your notion of cyber co-ops and why aren't we doing more with UK and Israel, it kind of reminds us, oh, yeah, if this is a domain of warfare, we should be thinking about alliances, just as we do whether we're talking about, you know, training exercises, European reassurance initiative, and others, and i really appreciated that aspect of your testimony. Thank you, Mr. Chair.
1: Yep. Please, go ahead. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Vice President, uh, uh, Senator. Um, Don't believe the fake news. Uh, no, well, I, <laughs> I think the warning that you're giving us is just by sitting here is something that we have to heed. You know, the, the consequences can be historic mm-hmm. if you ignore the lessons of this last election and what happened in these other places. I mean, just on such such things can turn the whole arc of history. So, uh, thank you for being here.
0: Thank you for your leadership on the issue. Thank you, Senator Kane. And if you don't mind, we'll just uh, go back and forth with the continued conversation if that's all right with you, if you don't have anything else going on right <laughs> now. Um, we started this conversation off, and I think there's a lot of things that we can follow up on. Uh, You know, South Korea and China, I think it's unacceptable. What China has done to South Korea is basically a a, a schoolyard bully when it comes to retaliating against uh, South Korea's decision uh, that they would make for uh, its self-protection and the placement of that. That's an alliance decision, and uh, obviously uh, we continue to work to strengthen that alliance with South Korea and the United States, Uh, but that was an important uh, decision uh, that we have to uh, make sure remains part of that alliance framework. it's cost, by the way, China has cost South Korea, in South Korean estimates, $7 billion in economic damage as a result of their retaliation uh, over uh, South Korea's self defense efforts. Uh, it, it, going back to the question that we talked about, uh, who's in charge? Uh, it, you know, the cyber coordinator at the State Department, the Defense Department offices, the White House offices, um, you know, China has a cyber administration. President Xi placed himself on the cyber committee, this uh, super cyber committee. Uh, other countries may be doing other things. Is there a different construct that we should be looking at? Uh, do we need a cyber administration? I don't want to create bureaucracy for the sake of creating bureaucracy. Do we need an envoy ambassador level position at State Department? How do we, how do we get to the point where we have somebody that is the identifiable lead when it comes to a whole of government cyber policy?
3: Um, well one thing that we you uh, might want to consider um, you know g- harkening back to the Eisenhower administration and uh, their solarium project um, with uh, you know how do we actually prevail in a battle space that is going to last into the future um, and looking at the hard choices of, of d- containment of deterrence um, you know the the big muscle movements of a government um, how do we do targeting uh, and who who is part of it these were taken on very specifically and focused and so right now in answer to your question I don't think there is um, any place residing in the US government that could undertake a solarium project drawing in the right people to be able to do it um, and where that sits, uh, whether that first sits on the outside and the the knowledge gained from that exercise is then imported onto a functioning process on the inside or whether uh, those things happen um, uh, simultaneously, it uh, needs to be kind of parsed out. But it is needed and it is needed immediately.
0: Thank you, Mr. Rosenbach. You know,
4: I I honestly think that um, we're at the point now where most of the known answers are there and available, and the biggest problem is implementation and finding people to get stuff done, particularly in the government. So I I like the idea that there could be a very senior person in the White House driving this in the interagency, interacting with the private sector, doing some things internationally, but it'd have to be someone who has gravitas, has clout, and, you know, also who has the, the backing of the president. Can a coordinator do this or does it need to
0: be a cabinet level official?
4: I would say the coordinator as it has been in this iteration, Rob Joyce is a great guy, very smart, very capable. Um, but he doesn't have the, the stature and the backing probably to really move things. I think similar to Michael Daniels. So it's not a, a political thing. I think it needs to be something that it's a more senior level position and it can't be within one of the departments. I don't think.
0: President Xi of course came to Washington last year and, and, uh, The Obama administration, President Xi, came to some kind of an agreement as it relates to China's cyber uh, efforts uh, against the United States. This is an outcome of the outgrowth of the uh, OPM breach. Uh, Is China living up to its end of the bargain uh, from the conversations it had here in Washington last year?
3: It seems that there was a, a dip at first, um, I, but uh, the, the um, anecdotes that are coming in, because, uh, and Eric and I were talking about this, the lack of a comprehensive database on cyber incidents against our private sector is, is not there. Um, I, it looks like a business as usual, meaning the wholesale theft of, of IP on the private sector side. Um, I'll let others talk about uh, the infiltration in the, on the government side of of the House. Um, there is a little bit of we don't know what we don't know, um, but again, anecdotally, uh, it looks like they're back to business.
4: Mr. Rosenbach? Uh, I, I, had, I hate to sound cynical, but Chris Painter and I were the two representatives to go negotiate with the Chinese on issues like this uh, back in the day, and they would tell us every single time that we met with them that they weren't doing economic espionage, that there was not the Chinese, there was no way to know that. so. I don't want to sound cynical, but I believe that they're now just better at doing what they were
0: doing before, and they found new ways, and that their leadership told them, don't you dare get caught again. So so a quick question for the two of you, and and you may not feel like you can answer this question. I don't know. But I had a meeting with the CEO of a major tech company in the United States, and he brought up five points, multi-factor authentication, strong encryption of data, micro-segmentation, consistent automatic patches and upgrades, and consistent education and testing of the workforce. Some pretty simple and basic uh, hygiene uh, points. And his point was that these five things, had they been implemented, would have prevented the OPM breach, would have prevented the Sony breach, would have prevented uh, uh, the, uh, the, other, the other, the ransomware uh, spread... Do you feel comfortable answering that question? Is that true? Is that something as simple as requiring vendors to do this kind of thing? Would that solve a significant portion of this threat?
3: I think it solves a portion of it, Um, but I think what the answer to – completely misses is that state adversaries, very, very aggressive, very technologically sophisticated state adversaries, are looking to hollow out portions of our economy. And while the five steps, um, you know, will go very nicely to, you know, locking doors, um, maybe getting a guard dog, um, if uh, the state actor needs to or wants to get in there, it's not going to suffice. And, you know, the action has to be taken against the state actor themselves. Uh, to push back on them.
0: Mr. Rosenbach, just last question, and then I'll turn over to Senator Markey. Um, do we have a nuclear deterrent in cyber?
4: Uh, we do, of course. So just like in any other domain, if there were a cyber attack against the United States that resulted in death or significant destruction, the nuclear option would be on the table. Now, of course, we want to be very, actual, very careful well, I don't about
0: mean that, an actual use of a nuclear bomb. I mean, is there a, a sort of theoretical uh, a, a digital version of a a nuclear deterrent within the cyber realm, should somebody do something so bad in the United States that we can send something back as a so-called cyber umbrella? And I think Dr. Ravitch has written about this.
4: Uh, I don't think, from everything I've done, that I've ever seen the cyber nuke, so to speak. And the, the issue is it takes a lot of preparatory work to get everything in place to be able to take something down. Uh, but it would be great if there were such a thing, and you would have to use it in conjunction with other military options. I believe. But right, maybe maybe some American
0: indulge. Do you mind if she answers? Okay,
3: uh, No, but um, this is this, These are the kind of policy options um, that we definitely do need to develop, along with a very clear declaratory policy. Where are we in terms of you know if a country takes an action or? Take, it allows for an action to be taken from their domain, right? I mean, it, it kind of harkens back to the declaratory policy that was created after 9-11. You, you either, you know, you sponsor a, a terrorism, uh, you actually do it, or you allow others to use your territory to do it. Um, I don't think that that either we or our adversaries understand our declaratory policy. I think we need to work on that. I think we need to have one. And again, it goes to not just the adversary themselves, but if they're sponsoring proxies, we see it the same way as if they did it themselves to us.
4: Thank you,
1: and I apologize. Senator I think it's very important. Um, the, uh, well, like Stux, Stuxnet, um, <clears throat> we probably have some capacity which has been developed. that We could paradox the Russians or any other country's electrical grid system. If, uh, if they really wanted us to have to um prove to them that we could reciprocate don't you think
3: dr rabich could we
1: would we um... oh could I say that just to with with senator Gondor was asking, is if we get attacked, can we attack back? You knock down our electric system, can we knock down their electric system?
3: I I assume, but do not know, that we have those, you know, those. I think that's,
4: yeah, thank you. Do you agree with that, Dr. Rosenberg? Um, I I think this is a really important question. So, the worst case would be that someone thought the United States was an emperor that had no clothes when it came to cyber capability. And so, when I was overseeing cyber things at the Department of Defense, I was very worried that we didn't have enough capability and often would talk bigger than what the capability warranted. So I think it's a really important question that you all are asking to push the country to have that type of real capability that you could use quickly and isn't wrapped in all kinds of uh, bureaucracy.
1: Bureaucracy, okay. So in the spy versus spy world uh, that we live, uh, the fact that the National Security Agency lost control of powerful cyber weapons to the group known as Shadow Brokers uh, raises questions about our own government, about our
4: own NSA.
1: Uh, who do you think Shadow Brokers are?
4: Uh, you know, Senator, I've read a lot of intelligence on this topic, so I can, just can't talk about that. Yeah. And uh, how about you, Dr. Rabbit?
3: Uh, kind of the same. I'm, I'm not comfortable talking about Yeah, the- right.
1: Right. So, Where it goes. you know, so we probably need a discussion about that, you know, if, if there's some group out there that can crack into the NSA and steal our cyber weapons, <laughs> and then we can't talk about who they are, it's hard to have a public policy response <laughs> in terms of what our paradox of them would be, you know, what we would be trying to create as public policy. So, that's a conundrum for us. I...
4: There is one thing that is important. I wasn't able to say orally, but is in my opening statement is that if we're going to build these type of cyber weapons, it's very, very important that we take care of them. So I was an army officer. When you're in the army, if you have an accidental discharge, even with a single round, there's accountability for that. And a company commander will be relieved. I'm not sure we have that same type of accountability right now.
1: So you are saying that these are powerful weapons, powerful cyber weapons, and they were not properly protected by the NSA. That's what you're saying. You used a metaphor or your gun.
4: sir, I'll use a metaphor, because I I can't comment specifically about any case, because there's ongoing legal uh, things. But I think you all understand.
1: Yeah, so if the United States is going to develop capabilities that allow our military and intelligence community to penetrate widely used commercial software, like Microsoft Windows, then we need to be far more vigilant to ensure that these tools are not stolen, much like we take steps, as you said, to make sure that other weapons arsenals uh, are safe from theft and misused. Uh, and we have to do the same for these tools. And, uh, in fact, I don't think it overstates the severity of the risk we face to suggest that it is time for the intelligence community to develop features akin to the permissive action links that ensure that our nuclear weapons cannot be used except when authorized by the president. Do you agree with that, Mr. Rosenbach?
4: I think that's a very interesting idea and that's something that is technically completely possible, Mm -hmm. and I only wonder why we haven't done it already. Dr. Ravitch, do you agree with that?
3: I do agree with it, um, you know, with the the proviso that um, there is a disconnect that has um, developed between the operators and senior policymakers. Uh, Last administration, this administration... I that um, in terms of the operators not being able to fully, adequately, comprehensively explain um, what they need to do and the ramifications of it, leaving the policymakers to say, don't do anything. Um, uh, that it is a dangerous kind of gap in understanding that has arisen, uh, I believe, leading us to not take actions when we could uh, for, for fear from the senior leadership that it will have unintended consequences, which many times it won't.
1: Yeah. So do you have any other ideas for us in terms of tools that the NSA and other law enforcement agencies should adopt in order to ensure that tools such as those used in WannaCry are not stolen and misused by uh, bad actors. Any other suggestions?
4: Uh, You know, Senator, this is less specific to the U.S. government and us taking care of our our cyber arsenal, so to speak. But in particular, because you're the Foreign Relations Committee, um, there's an analogy to the proliferation security initiative, where if you were to work on a bilateral basis, on building the capacity of nations to stop the proliferation of destructive malware, I think that's something that can make a difference. There's a a little bit of deterrence aspect in that as well because a lot of countries buy those type of capabilities on the black market with Bitcoin or straight out cash. Mm. It's sometimes hard to develop. If we're
5: able to do something about that, I think it could
4: make a difference.
5: Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Kane. That I welcome back to Dr. Ravich on allies and cyber uh, co ops. I, th- I think that is a fascinating part of your testimony, and you are with the Foundation of Defense of Democracies. And w- one of the analogous challenges we're grappling with on the Armed Services Committee, I'm kind of interested in putting it into this context, is the battle against ISIS. So at, in the summer of 2014, ISIS had its biggest expanse of real estate in the U.S. and the coalition effort to defeat ISIS on the battlefield has been pretty successful, squeezing them down, painful, slow, but they are losing, and they know it, and we know it, and they know that we know it. But ISIS now has decided, okay, if we're losing space on the battlefield, then what we probably should do is focus more on one-off attacks, whether it's an airliner in the Sinai, a mausoleum in Tehran, Manchester, London, San Bernardino, they're going to try to inspire attacks. You don't beat those attacks with a battalion, Uh, you beat those attacks with intelligence sharing. So kind of, again, this is a kind of warfare where the quality of your alliances and the quality of the information that you share is probably the most important thing to defeat the attacks. So now I'm putting myself into the cyber realm. Uh, It may be that as we think about cyber defense, the quality of these alliances uh, will end up being very critically important to whether we can, you know, protect, defend our democracies, protect our own internal democracy. How should we gauge the – it's one thing to judge the capacity of another nation to be a battlefield, um, you know, fighting force alongside with us and choose them to be a partner because we trust their on-the-ground battle capacity, combat capacity. How about gauging allies in the cyber realm for working cooperatively? And the one that I'm thinking about is in the – under. PM Modi, they have shed a little bit of the Congress's party non-alignment philosophy, and they do more training, military training exercises with the United States than any other nation. And it is also a nation with a strong technological capacity. So just to use them as an example, analyzing India as a potential, and this is our, the region we're talking about, analyzing India as a potential um, ally in a cyber-co-op arrangement, uh, as you describe in your testimony.
3: No, it's, it's very interesting. I mean, you know, uh, how we were thinking about it is, um, so the easiest hurdle to cooperate is probably um, on the R&D agenda, mm-hmm. right? Because sharing mm-hmm. of intelligence gets a little bit tricky and, and uh, different countries have have uh, different trust levels. Mm-hmm. Um, so the idea was, well, let's walk into this in a way that we can actually get some goodness, not to talk shop, but actually create something. We all have comparative advantages. When mm-hmm. I started out looking at, at the United States, the Israelis, the UK, we have different comparative advantages technologically um, uh, to go forward on that. Um, but then as you start to kind of broaden out, other countries, while they may not be technological superstars, have particular windows into a certain threat, mm-hmm. right? Ukraine has a window into a, a, a threat. They, kind of, they can understand a certain actor. There are other countries in the world that are also good friends or, or partners or allies with us on other things that have a window into a threat. Um, do they share the similar goals with us Mm -hmm. Um, so in terms of where India places I think high and evolving on the technology certainly a window into into a threat from where they where they are um, and certain shared goals going going ahead
5: and I guess another area of share shared interest that you might want to look at is if they are facing a problem similar to us so there might be a threat like a country But there also could be, is there a particular sector where you are facing challenges and we're facing challenges in the same sector? And that might suggest not, you know, cooperation on all of cyber defense, but at least let's shore up our utility sector or our financial sectors at risk. So for purposes of R&D or other things, that we could focus on a sector and make make each of our nations stronger. So that would be probably another area that we should look at. I agree. Mm -hmm. Thank you. That's very helpful.
0: Thank you. And, Senator Kane, thanks for referring to India. I hope to use this committee to adversely possess India as jurisdiction for the Indochina, Indo-Pacific uh, I'm, I'm on uh, committee. the committee
5: that oversees India, <laughs> but it's always grasping.
1: <laughs> thank you. Senator Markey. Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I want to follow up on Senator Kaine uh, because um, following the WannaCry attack, Microsoft's President Brad Smith called the attack a wake-up call for the world's governments – And Smith called for a Digital Geneva Convention in which governments would agree not to retain vulnerabilities for cyber weapons development and would instead reveal those vulnerabilities to software developers to protect consumers against attack. In essence, Smith was calling for a kind of cyber arms control comparable to the arms control regimes we have developed in the nuclear weapons domain. Of course, the analogy only goes so far. Nuclear weapons are physical objects. Cyber weapons are digital objects, which can be hidden far more effectively. Cyber arms control would face far greater difficulties when it comes to verification and enforcement, but that does not mean that governments have no interest in cooperating. For example, if a country's hospitals are vulnerable to cyber attacks, that could impact global health. If a country's airports are vulnerable, That could impact travelers from beyond its borders. And if a country's stock market can be manipulated, that could affect the global financial system. Can you both discuss your thoughts on global cooperation intended to improve cybersecurity? What are the limits of cyber arms control? And are there remaining opportunities for international cooperation that we have not fully explored?
3: I have reservations um about uh, i i a push towards broader um, cyber norms um, and uh, these large scale uh, uh, elements that, that you're discussing um, that they can rapidly turn into um, a lot of wonderful language with lofty goals um, uh, but uh, uh, crumble because of two things um, one because too many people are in it with too many different different visions of what they want to do and capabilities to actually do them. Um, And the second being that uh, somebody opens the door to hostile adversaries being part of the discussion. Um, So I I kind of fall back on some of the earlier discussions. Um, Let's start with a small group of like-minded countries that can actually put real technology to starting to solve some of these problems and have the wherewithal and the will um, to take actions when needed, show great results in in that front, and then slowly open, open up to who else do we want to protect under our cyber umbrella.
4: You remember how President Reagan said, trust but verify, when he was talking about arms control? I think that trust part with the Russians right now in particular would be very difficult when it comes to cyber arms control. So I think it's an interesting idea. Personally, I think we should go for more practical projects. You know, for example, like trying to stop proliferation, working together and doing that with the private sector as well. Down the road, I think it's an interesting idea, but I'm not sure, in particular from the Department of Defense perspective, where I used to sit, that that's something we'd be that supportive of. Yeah. thank you, Mr. Rosbach, and
1: and, uh, you know, and I appreciate you know this Russia-U.S. tension. It's not quite Broncos uh, Patriots, um, uh, uh, but I appreciate your living in Cambridge in the era of Tom Brady and uh, in, uh, uh, in football. So thank you for thank you both for your testimony.
0: Yeah, and thank you both for being here, and I think. Uh, One of the things that the Senate should look at soon is the Patch Act. That's legislation that would uh, address some of the uh, efforts and vulnerabilities that we've seen. If the U.S. uh, government knows of a patch and it's not a national security issue, then we ought to be making sure that 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 patch is available and out there. And so a a, a number of ways that we could work to make sure that we address some of these uh, issues. I think it's interesting questions that we've got to continue to build upon, understanding how uh, our global alliances work when it comes to issues of cyber, understanding who's in charge, and understanding that perhaps uh, Russia and China are not going to, uh, will not hold the same kind of interest that we do as it relates to these issues. And so how do we move forward with uh, common uh, interests around the globe to develop uh, the kinds of norms that we need to and not wait uh, to convince people who may not we may not be able to convince so uh, I want to thank all of you uh, thanks to both of you for your your testimony today very interesting and actionable. Uh, Thanks to all the Senators who attended today's hearing and the witnesses. Uh, Again, thank you. Uh, For the information the members, the record will remain open until the close of business on Thursday, including for members to submit questions for the record. This is your homework assignment. I would just ask kindly that the dog not eat your homework and you return the homework as quickly as possible. Uh, Ask the witnesses to respond as promptly as possible, and the responses will be made a part of the record. And again, thanks to the committee. The hearing is now adjourned.